You hear about those stories this time of year, near Halloween. The stories about how if you do a specific ritual in a haunted house, like saying Bloody Mary's name into the mirror or using a Ouija board to summon a demon, and how everyone has that friend of a friend that did the ritual and had weird things happen to them. I guess I sort of have another one to add to the pile, but this is a first-hand account, not a friend of a friend, because it happened to me and some friends a few years back in college. I had graduated high school earlier that year. I was a baby-faced 18-year-old with no experience, making difficult choices that would affect my entire life with little to no supervision while I was making these choices. I had applied to colleges in my hometown and across the country, and eventually accepted an invitation from Penn State University at their main campus in State College. My first few weeks of school were the usual college experience. Getting used to the maze of campus buildings, knowing no one and being awkward in class, and slowly finding that click that you best align with and beginning to make friends. Drinking, underage of course, partying, procrastinating, and normal college things while knowing there will be a mountain of debt after I finished. I fell into the group that best fit me. The nerds. The Dungeons and Dragons players. The video game extraordinaires. The people that once you got them out of their shell by doing the thing they were interested in, they became social and talkative. There were about two dozen students that gathered semi-regularly to play board games, video games, chat about different fandom things swap stories from their most recent tabletop RPG session, or just assist each other with classwork. Three people from the group became my close friends. Renee, Mark, and Chris. The three of us were all players in Mark's D&D campaign and bonded over the game. We became good friends outside of it. We met a few times a week to go over homework have private sessions of Dungeons and Dragons, watch some god-awful B-movies and make fun of them in a mystery science theater 3000 way, or have some beers from the local brewery that somebody bought for us, and chat. Renee was a local from the area. She was average height and had dark brown, almost black hair. She grew up outside of town, minutes away, and had always been engrossed in the Penn State culture, mostly against her will. She was in the agriculture program, looking to eventually take over her family farm and sell to local farm-to-table restaurants. Mark was from the middle of Ohio. He was built like a brick house and looked like a stereotypical jock. In reality, he grew up on a farm and was in one of the agriculture programs. We regularly gave him shit regarding the Buckeyes and Penn State rivalry, but but we all knew that none of us really followed the sports. Although Penn State hockey games weren't that bad to watch, I found out after attending a few. Chris was from New York State. They were short, maybe five foot tall. Their hair seemed to change weekly, but during the first few weeks, I remember it being like a bluish silver that reminded me of icicles. The four of us were sitting in my apartment, around the beginning of October, 
discussing classes and different strategies for our session coming up in D&D tomorrow. Renee and Chris were sitting on the couch. Mark was in my roommate's lazy boy recliner, and I was sitting propped up against the wall on the floor. The topic turned to food and what we wanted to go grab. We decided to go and get something from Big Noodle Bull House just off campus. It was nearly seven, and the sun had just set over the mountains of Happy Valley. If you're wondering why they call that area Happy Valley, I guess doing research, uh, the area wasn't too affected by the Great Depression in the 1930s, mainly because of the presence of Penn State and the farming communities around it. As I was saying, it's the beginning of October, and the trees around campus and on the mountains had changed color and begun shedding leaves. A few blew across our path as we walked towards our delicious Chinese stir-fried destination. Renee, you ever hear the story about Ruth Nelson? Mark asked, glancing over towards her. What, like the ghost story? Yeah, I've heard about it, but I don't believe it. I think stories like the stacks are scarier than Ruth Nelson. Everyone who had ever been on or near campus had heard of the stacks at some point. The stacks are libraries on campus consisting of multiple floors of only books and bookshelves that you can literally get lost in for hours if you aren't careful. Maintenance workers who worked at the school for decades still sometimes got lost because everything is the same on each floor. The story, well, it's, it's hard to call it a story because what happened is true. Back in November of 1969, a girl named Betsy Ardsma was doing research for a paper when she was murdered by a single stab in her chest that pierced her heart. Supposedly, the stacks are haunted by her now, and strange things still happen within them. No one was ever arrested or caught or even suspected of the murder. Whether it's a strange feeling of being watched or followed, seeing shadows or having books fall off the shelves, People claim strange things happen for a very real event. What's the story of Ruth Nelson? Chris asked after an awkward silence of the stacks being mentioned. Mark cleared his throat. Ruth Nelson was an old lady that lived alone in a large home within Ramblewood back in the 1900s. She inherited some wealth from her father when he passed, leaving her alone with the large home she had grown up in. Eventually she married... Ruth and her husband lived in the house for a few decades, never having kids for whatever reason. Her husband was popular among those in State College, bumping elbows with the right people and having the right connections. Ruth's husband died suddenly one day and left her alone again in the house. People from the area said that she never really left the home after his death. They claimed they would see her silhouette in the second-story window, looking out at the road or the fields, and that was about it. A neighbor would bring her groceries and medicines, as well as other supplies. When questioned, the neighbor never really said much. Ruth was a recluse and didn't want to go outside. Some speculated that she had been hurt by her husband to the point that she was scarred and deformed and killed him in self-defense or revenge. Others said that she didn't leave because she was afraid of the world outside of the house, that the town folk would turn on her for some reason. Others, still, said that she died long ago, and the neighbor was taking bags of groceries and doing maintenance around the house 
to keep cashing in checks long after Ruth was gone. Her body buried out back in the yard or propped up in a window so people caught sight of her and said she was still alive. Well, that sounds like a cliché story, I mumbled. Mark shot me a glare. I can't help it. I'm repeating the story. Ruth's house was left to rot near the fields because the main road that went near her place was replaced by the new one today. There was no real reason to tear it down. She was buried out at Tadpole Cemetery, just outside of Ramblewood. There's only a few dozen graves in the cemetery. The part we care about, though, is if you go there at night and find her grave, light a candle and place it on a tombstone, sit in a circle around her grave, you'll hear her sing a song. People said that sometimes it sounds like it's coming from underground, and others say they've seen an old woman walking the cemetery singing after performing the ritual. I've heard the part about the ritual before, Renee chimed in but never knew anyone that actually went and did it. It seems like a stupid folktale to get dumb kids caught by police. I read the police blotters and see a few people getting caught every year for trespassing in cemeteries trying to do things like this. But this cemetery is in the middle of nowhere. Who's gonna care? Those kids probably went to cemeteries right next to the big churches in town where everyone could see. No one's gonna care about a rinky-dink boneyard with, what, two dozen headstones? Mark pushed back. I'm in for a spooky ritual, but only if we go and see the old house first, I offered. I want to see everywhere this story took place, starting at the remains of the house and ending at the cemetery. It was a day or two later before we all met up again. Rene was a local and had a car, where the rest of us only needed to walk around campus to get everything that we needed. We gathered at a restaurant for some food before packing into Renee's car. Mark and I crammed in the back, Renee and Chris in the front. So where's her old house supposed to be at? Chris asked. Ramblewood. Renee, you, you know where that is? Mark questioned. Nope. Probably one of those towns that are so small on a map that you never see them compared to State College. There's probably like five houses there now. Bring it up on your phone. I'm sure we can figure it out once we get in the area, Renee said pointedly. I searched for Ramblewood, Ruth Nelson, on my phone, and didn't really get anything interesting. I was a bit of a history nerd, with history being my major, and knew a few places to find old maps and aerial photos from when they first took photos in the sky. As Renee drove through town, Mark gave her directions, and I dug up some old photos of the town. Renee was right. Throughout most of its existence, Ramblewood was pretty much just farmland and one or two buildings. Then you can see the influence of the college town begin to take effect in the 1800s. The road becomes larger, and a few houses pop up. The town sort of stays that way for a few decades, probably some sort of zoning taking place, and then suddenly there's houses. Dozens of them. The last census had 850 people living there roughly. Mark, or Renee, did any of the stories ever talk about what her house looked like? I can see a few in the pictures from like 1840, but it's going to be hard to tell exactly where it was. I made eye contact with Renee through the rearview mirror. No, I've never heard anything. She just lived in a creepy house. All the houses from then kind of looked creepy anyway, she said flatly, glancing at me as she spoke. 
Well, if we can't find it, at least we can drive around and get a feel for the area. If driving around Ramblewood doesn't take too long, maybe we can look for the cemetery. I heard that it's hard to find, Mark added. Chris, can you try and find anything on the cemetery? Tadpole Cemetery, right? I looked at Mark, and he nodded. I'll try to look up some old property records and see if I can get a hit. Chris started the search on their phone, and I tried to see where the houses from the 1800s correlated with the house locations of today. I had just started to get my bearings when Renee slowed the car down. Looking up, we saw the sign for Ramblewood. We were there. Long story short, no. We were not able to tell where Ruth Nelson's house was that day. We drove up and down, looped around the town, and didn't see any sign of what was once there. It was a bit of a disappointment, I won't lie. I love exploring old, decrepit buildings and the foundations of ones that are gone. After pulling back onto the main road, Chris spoke up. So there seems to be no cemetery by that name, Tadpole Cemetery. You could almost hear the sigh of anguish from Mark when he realized the entire thing may be a bust. But, Chris continued, I did some looking around on the satellite and found one of these small, teeny tiny graveyards. They held up a phone to the back seat for Mark and I to see. Surrounded by fields and bordered by small trees was this graveyard just barely visible, sitting out of place. Maybe 20 or 30 graves based on the size? I have no idea how Chris actually spotted that graveyard. Even roughly knowing where it is now, I can't find it on the maps when I check. We drove as close on the road as we could. The fields around the graveyard had corn planted. That would give us a bit of security when we did the ceremony. People just couldn't look across an open field and see us from a mile away doing this in a place we shouldn't be. There was a dirt road that we could pull down in between some fields, a dead end to get to the back of them. We would park the car and go through the cornfield until we reached the cemetery on Halloween night. During the two weeks between when we went to Ramblewood and Halloween, I went on a bit of a quest. I had to find Ruth's old house, or at least the location of it. The property had to exist in an old record book somewhere. I dug at the archives in the stacks, I browsed local libraries, and even inquired the local government itself. Nothing turned up a property on Ruth Nelson. I had searched for about a week when I had an epiphany. Ruth was a widow, and never remarried. She also inherited her property from her father. What if, for some reason, the property never changed hands to her name? Nelson is not her maiden name, but her husband's name. If the property never changed hands, Nelson wouldn't be correct for the records. So I had to find a record of their marriage to find her maiden name. The second of the two weeks was spent going through old marriage records from all around State College, looking for Nielsen men being married to women. After going through a couple hundred marriage records, newspaper clippings, and old photos, I finally got a match. Robert Nelson was married to Ruth Miller on the 7th of May, 1904. I had to find a property that belonged to a Miller. Halloween came and we all brought our own food to Chris's dorm. 
As we ate, we started to go over the plan to get to the cemetery. I spoke up, unzipped my backpack, and pulled out a few things I found in my dredging of history. So I was able to get some information on the house. Turns out the house was never put in the Ruth's name or her husband's. So it sat as her father's for a long time before someone finally realized this and gave it to the proper owner. Ruth's maiden name was Miller, and the house isn't demolished. At least, the last time the satellite photos were taken two years ago. We can still go there. It's on the edge of a field next to some woods at the bottom of a hill. Depending on the crops in the field, there may not be a lot of cover for us to sneak through and stay hidden. We can go there before or after the cemetery. It's up to you guys. The others, as I told my little story, began grinning. We took a vote, and based on where the house was located, we decided to try the ritual at the cemetery first. After that, we would try and locate the house in person. As we were riding in Renee's car, Mark spoke up. So there's a bit more to the ritual than just lighting a candle and sitting in a circle. He picked up his backpack and pulled out a grocery bag that contained a few different things of dried plants. What, are we supposed to get high with Ruth or something? Chris said with a chuckle, looking back at what he brought. No, these are special oils. Sage and a few other things that we have to mix in a bowl and spread around her grave where she's buried. Then we have to say a sentence in Latin. Why the hell do we need to do that? Was Ruth from Rome? Why does it need to be in Latin? I said harshly. Yeah, I never heard any of this in the stories I was told. In fact, why does she sing to you once you do the ritual? She isn't a singer in the stories, just... A rich widow, Renee said with a hint of snark. Okay, okay, Mark conceded. I guess we don't need to say the chant or whatever, but the oils and herbs I still want to do. I spent money on this stuff, and it can't hurt, right? I couldn't argue with his rock-solid logic. Renee took her time driving as people were out and about for trick-or-treating all around us. Once we reached the edge of State College, there was an almost instant lack of people milling about. It made our trip to Ramblewood go a bit faster than expected. The houses were spread out enough that anyone trick-or-treating was going to need a car. There were smaller developments where the houses were closer, but no one near the road to worry about. Once we got past the developed part of Ramblewood, the houses stopped and fields began. The brownish-green rows of corn stood seven or eight feet tall on our right, and a field of what used to be soybeans sat harvested on the left. The turn for the dirt road came up quickly and nearly blended into the rows of corn. Renee drove past it the first time, Chris navigating the way back on their phone. Renee did a U-turn a minute or two further ahead, doubling back towards the dirt road, slowing down as we came closer. As we made the turn, you could see the lights from the houses and streetlights ahead of us in Ramblewood. Once the turn was complete, there was nothing but darkness outside of the car's headlights. The corn on either side of the road made the small trail that we were on feel even smaller and like a tunnel. We continued until there was a small indent in the wall of corn on our left. Chris told Renee to pull her car in, as we were about as close as we were going to get without driving through the field. We climbed out of the car and stood around for a few seconds, letting the atmosphere of the area flood over us. There was the sound of a zipper and the rustling of somebody rummaging through a bag. Then a click 
and a light came on. Chris held a flashlight in their hands. This way, they said, stepping into the rows of corn. Within a second, the light was gone, and Mark shouted, Chris, wait up, before stepping into the field. Renee and I quickly followed behind. I saw the glow of Chris's light ahead, and heard the loud steps of Mark thudding on the dirt between the corn. Leaves brushed against my face, causing me to lift my arms and block them from cutting me. Renee, you good back there? I half-whispered to her as we caught up. Yeah, I'm good. Keep going, I heard her say behind me. This continued for a good five minutes. Chris moving quickly through the corn. Mark nearly blocking the light I could see, and Renee and I always seeming to not get closer to them. Just as I was about to shout for them to slow down, the cornfield ended, and we found ourselves surrounded by trees. Old trees that had already shed their leaves, leaving a creaky, spindly skeleton looming over us in the clearing. Chris's light sat on an old, rusted, wrought-iron metal fence that was maybe four feet tall. The gate galled shut from ages of not being operated. Well, Mark, I gotta hand it to you, Renee said, reaching up and grabbing his shoulder. It is creepy as hell here. Thanks. Now we need to see if we can get in and find Ruth's grave. Chris is the only smart one who brought a light. Everyone else can use their phones, I guess, Mark said quietly, pulling out his phone and turning on the flashlight. He and Chris split up and walked the perimeter of the fence until we heard Chris shout from one end, I found an opening here. We walked to where they were standing, and sure enough, a section of fence had rotted away until it fell into itself, leaving a hole about two feet wide. We slipped into the cemetery and searched the old stones with our lights. It quickly became apparent that the stones were pitted and worn with age and weather. We only had a bit more than a dozen headstones to choose from. We decided to pick the largest. If Ruth really was wealthy, she would have had one of the nicest headstones in the graveyard. At least that's what we figured. Mark pulled the bowl from his backpack and placed oil and herbs into it. At that point, a gust of wind shot across the cemetery, causing the trees to creak and drown out most of the sound around us with rustling corn stalks. The air was getting colder as winter was soon approaching. It actually wasn't uncommon for Halloween to have snowfall during some years in Pennsylvania. Mark handed the candle to Renee, who sparked a flame from her lighter, igniting the wick on the candle. A soft, flickering glow illuminated our faces unevenly and caused shadows to be cast on all of us. As the candle was lit, I think I felt a shift in the air again, but it might have just been me being paranoid. She slowly placed the candle into the pile of herbs in the bowl, and Mark looked around at us. Are we saying the... No, we aren't saying the stupid Latin chant, Chris cut him off sharply. Mark sort of lowered his face, and we all knew he was saying it in his head. The groans of the trees gave a sort of impression of a person maybe singing, if you thought about it hard enough. We sat around while the wind pushed leaves into the tombstones around us. One of the leaves eventually found its way onto the top of the candle, and lit on fire. Well, this is pretty anticlimactic, Renee groaned, getting up from her sitting position. Where's the house at? Not far, I replied. Maybe a ten-minute drive, if I had to estimate. 
Then let's go. Mark, blow out that candle and dump the herbs and oils. I don't want those stinking up my car. Mark did what he was told. I could tell that he was feeling a bit disappointed from the ritual being a letdown. Hey, Mark, I said as we walked through the rows of dry corn. What was that Latin phrase, by the way? Nothing too special. Something along the lines of, Ruth, we ask that you come forward and give us a sign, Mark said with a bit of a forced laugh. Saying it out loud, it does seem pretty dumb. Why would a Pennsylvanian woman from the 18-1900s know Latin? We reached Renee's car and began driving the short distance to Ruth Miller's old home. I guided us to a spot near a row of bushes between two fields to try and obscure the car from anyone passing by. The fields were full of stems and leaves from the soybeans that had been harvested in the weeks prior to us arriving. I looked across the field and could faintly see the outline of a large, dark shape on the other side. I think I can see the house, I said, stepping onto the field. The dirt in this field was much less firm than in the cornfield. Our feet sank into the dirt an inch or two as we walked, caking a bit on the soles of our shoes as we walked, making it heavy and awkward unless you shook the mud off every couple of steps. Eventually we all said screw it and walked awkwardly with the extra weight on our feet. It took us about twenty minutes to cross the field. The sky had cleared a bit and the moon brightened the area we were going towards, allowing us to see the house. The crooked lines from leaning walls and sagging roof made the place look even more unnatural than it should have. The dark windows without glass reminded me of eyeless sockets. The home was two stories tall and slightly larger than even the nicer houses in the developments around State College. It must have been huge compared to the houses surrounding it, and explained why I could see it from all the way across the field in the middle of the night. There was some debris scattered around the outside of the house. Fallen shingles, shutters, and glass near the windows, just to name a few. The house itself seemed fragile. Though it stood strong against the winds that blew across the fields every day, you could hear the tapping of something against the side of the house in the winds. Wow. This is creepy. Now, don't get me wrong, the graveyard was cool, but this is a whole nother level of spooky. Chris said with a smile, walking towards the house. We found there was a covered porch on the far end of the building, with busted stairs leading up to the landing. We shimmied our way up the edge of the broken stairs and stood on the porch, looking at a rectangle of darkness that was the inside of Ruth's home. The door had been knocked off its hinges and laid aside. We took a step near the door and heard the echo of our footsteps inside. They sounded like they were echoing in a much larger space. We were just out of sight of the road, and Mark, being the closest to the door, turned on his phone's light. He shined it into the doorway and jumped back. When he settled again, we could see nothing but a dark void where we were about to step. The floor had caved in at some point, leaving a good seven or eight foot drop into the basement and onto broken boards and remnants of the interior of the home. The light showed us a few things that still stood in the house, though. About 15 feet from the doorway, we saw the bottom of a staircase just hovering in the air, holding on by the connection to the floor above. The sight seemed really weird, like something from a trippy movie. We walked around on the porch, discussing what to do next, 
we obviously couldn't enter the house, so we decided to walk around it and look inside wherever we could. We found another door on the other side of the house, facing the hillside. Looking through the glassless window, a kitchen greeted us. An old sink and cabinets sat mounted on the walls. The floor, with its grainy hardwood, was warped, and boards jutted out randomly as the floor had begun to sag towards the middle of the house. There was one more door that we found that was part of a walkway, down some stairs, into the basement. Another door sat at the bottom of the stairs, painted green, and it had an old metal latch that was snapped off. Mark walked down and pushed the door open an inch or two before it stopped on something behind it. He shined the light into the darkness, and his shoulder slumped. Caven's blocking the door, too. It seems like the whole floor above is on top of this. We decided to stop our exploration, and go back to the front porch, and sit and watch the inside of the house. Just to see if we heard or saw anything odd. Renee lit a cigarette as we sat, and the smoke whisked its way into the room. Kind of hovering over the large hole in the floor. We heard typical groans and creaks from old construction. We heard a whistle at one point, and found that the wind was causing the noise, as it had found a crack in the boards to squeeze through. We looked out into the field. The vast emptiness was something I was not used to. We saw lights then. Flashing lights from down the road towards town. Ah, oh, shit, did they find my car? Renee groaned, smacking the railing of the fence, the lights growing brighter. Someone must have called it in when they drove by. Maybe they saw our flashlights, Chris suggested. As the source of the lights became visible, we all breathed a sigh of relief. An ambulance, with no siren, lights flashing, sped down the road. All right, that's enough excitement for me, Renee said firmly. Let's get back to campus. We can still have a couple drinks. With that, our adventure was over. We walked our way back through the field, tramping down the remains of the harvest. Our feet still sank into the dirt and made it awkward to walk. I turned back to look at the outline of the house again and stopped. Everyone heard me stop and turn too. We weren't very far into the field, maybe 30 or 40 feet, and the house was still large and looming over us. Moving on the second floor of the house was a light. It wasn't like a light being moved like a flashlight, though. It was bobbing and moved from room to room slow. There was no way for someone to get to the second floor unless they were a gymnast. I heard one of us say, What the hell? as we watched the light move to the left side of the house and show the outline of a person looking out the window. As that happened, I swear to you, I swear to you, you can ask the others, I heard humming of an older woman drifting on the wind from the direction of the house. <laughs>